Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute uh, for this panel on the Indian Child Welfare Act at 40. I'm Walter Olson with uh, the Cato Institute and it's uh, Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies. The Indian Child Welfare Act um, is now observing its 40th anniversary. It has uh, been a um, milestone for Indian communities, uh, strongly backed by such advocates as Senator, the late Senator John McCain, uh, by the Child Welfare League of America. At the same time, it's been controversial in ways that you'll be hearing about uh, over the next hour and a half. Um, in particular, we want to focus in on uh, the, how ICWA has uh, fared in the courts. Uh, it has reached the U.S. Supreme Court in two major cases over that time. Uh, 1989, Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians versus Holyfield. Uh, in that case, uh, uh, the late Justice Antonin Scalia uh, cited the uh, uh, Holyfield case as to him the most disturbing that he had ever ruled on uh, during his years on the court uh, because he said that uh, proper principles of statutory interpretation seemed to point one way, uh, the best interests of those involved seemed to point the other way. Uh, he went with what he thought uh, proper statutory interpretation called for. Uh, in 2013, ICWO returned to the Supreme Court in the case of uh, adoptive couple, better known to many as the Baby Veronica case, and uh, led to a um, uh, fairly dramatic decision uh, written, I believe, by Justice Samuel Alito, uh, altering much of what people had thought about how the law worked. Uh, <clears throat> ICWA is the subject of considerable ongoing litigation, quite a bit of it filed by our first speaker, Tim Sandifer. Uh, but what I'm going to be doing, uh, and, and his Goldwater Institute in Arizona, uh, what I'm going to be doing first, though, is to uh, introduce each of the three speakers uh, all at once, and then uh, introduce them, er, and then uh, invite them to, to speak one after another. Uh, after that, we will uh, have crosstalk and reactions between panelists, and then turn to you, the audience, for questions. Uh, please silence those pesky cell phones. Uh, don't make us do that for you. And um, uh, our first speaker will be uh, Tim Sandifer. Uh, Tim is, among other things, an adjunct scholar here at the Cato Institute, uh, but his day job is vice president for litigation at the Goldwater Institute, where he oversees the Institute's legal staff. Uh, and holds a ch chair in constitutional government there. Uh, he has uh, litigated on behalf of economic liberty and many other issues um, uh, dear to Cato's heart, and is the author of five books so far, four of which are from Cato. Uh, the most recent is Frederick Douglass' Self-Made Man, 2018, fascinating book about uh, the great American and Marylander. Um, he also has a sixth book that is coming out, but he tells me that it's not from, from Cato, so I'm not going to mention it any further. Um, he has written extensively on issues from eminent domain uh, to antitrust, um, uh, evolution and creationism, and the Civil War. Um, uh, most of his writing uh, comes back at some point to issues of individual liberty and property rights. 
Um, uh, Matthew McGill, who will speak second, is a partner in the Washington DC office of Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher. Uh, he practices in the firm's litigation department. Uh, uh, he has been named one of 10 appellate lawyers to watch under 40 um, and a litigation trailblazer for his pioneering work. And I, I love this specialty, his, his work against foreign sovereigns, which I told him sounded somewhat piratical. Um, he has litigated against uh, foreign governments of, of, of various sorts. And he also participated in uh, the case last term, uh, uh, the Murphy case involving uh, uh, New Jersey's uh, legalization of sports betting. Uh, for more on that particular case, I direct you to Cato's um, annual Cato Supreme Court Review, our volume, which is the first out of the gate in analyzing each year's uh, uh, concluded Supreme Court uh, term. Uh, we just had a conference on that at Cato's con Constitution Day on Monday. Uh, the entire text, including the case on the New Jersey gambling uh, decision is available online. Um, he has participated in 21 cases before the Supreme Court, including oral argument in one. And he, um, Matthew is the attorney for plaintiffs in a case he will tell you about um, Brackeen versus Zinke underway in Texas in Indian Child Welfare Act. Uh, finally, our third speaker is Charles Rothfeld. Uh, Charles Rothfeld is consul at the firm of Meyer Brown in Washington, D.C., and he is also visiting clinical lecturer at Yale Law School. Uh, he has conducted no less than 32 oral arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, testimony to how highly valued his uh, 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 skills of persuasion are. Uh, some of those were with the U.S. government, uh, uh, but also on behalf of a wide range of private clients. Uh, overall, he has worked on more than 200 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, as well as hundreds of cases before federal and state appellate courts. Uh, in particular, he represented at oral argument the birth father in the adoptive couple versus baby girl case, the baby Veronica case, uh, representing uh, the Indian father in that case. Um, it seems pointless to add more accolades, but I will. He has been described as a genius for his work on a vast number of Supreme Court appeals, as well as, uh, not surprisingly, one of Washington's top lawyers and appellate hot list. So, uh, Tim and Matthew, you're going to have your work cut out for you uh, with Charles responding. Uh, uh, please welcome Tim Sandifer. Thank you very much, Walter, and thank you for uh, for hosting us today. I um, <clears throat> I. I feel very sensibly the uh, the difficulty of addressing such a complex statute as ICWA in the short amount of time that I have available, and so I will I'll try to to make my points brief. Um, we at the Goldwater Institute are litigating or participating in litigation in about a half dozen cases in state and federal courts on issues relating to ICWA because of our concern that due to the compromises that the statute makes between the, the interests of children and the interests of tribal governments, ICWA actually ends up harming Native American children and their parents in a variety of ways. Uh, we have a, a lawsuit currently pending in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals right now, aside from the cases in, in Texas, uh, the Brackeen case that Matthew will talk about, and uh, other cases that raise a whole host of issues, and I won't have time to get to them all. So I I'll urge you all, if you're interested, to pick up a copy of the pamphlet that I've left out on the table that is a shortened version of a law review article I published last year that covers other issues I won't have time to discuss. When you discuss the issues of ICWA, I don't know if any of you were at the 
Supreme Court event on Monday when Attorney General of Arizona Mark Burnovich was speaking. But there was a question that I asked him via the, the internet about ICWA. And he did what, what often happens when this issue is raised, and that is he talked about the history, about the, the unjustified removal of Native American children from their parents and their placement in boarding schools for a long period in American history, all of which is certainly deplorable, but all of which also has nothing to do with the issues that are raised in the litigation that we're talking about. It doesn't relate to the way that ICWA provides a separate and substandard set of rules for a particular racial category of Americans. Uh, and this is not, I, I emphasize this, this is not a statute that is some sort of affirmative action program. This is a, a statute that harms a racial minority under the guise of benefiting them. And not just the children, but their parents. Let's talk about a couple examples. And before I go into the examples, I, not long ago I was giving a talk at ASU in, uh, in Arizona, and after I had recited a half dozen cases uh, in which these issues were raised, my opponent complained that I was using anecdotal evidence. Uh, well, you know, in the law, cases that talk about and decide legal issues aren't just anecdotes. These are the real life implications and applications of this statute. A case we worked on not long ago called Enray SS. This is a case that involved two children of a tribal member in Arizona and the, the, the father. The father wanted to sever the parental rights of the birth mother on the grounds of neglect and improper behavior. And the problem with that is that because the children are Indian children under the statute, the separate standard of evidence, the separate, uh, separate evidentiary requirement that applies in uh, termination of parental rights cases applied to these children that would not have applied to these children had they been white, black, Asian, Hispanic, or a member of any other racial minority. And what that meant was that the father was required before he could terminate parental rights of the, of the neglectful birth mother, he was required to show that he had made active efforts to repair the relationship of the children and the mother. Now, nobody really knows what active efforts means, but we know that it means more than ordinary efforts, more than reasonable efforts, which is the federal standard and the standard that applies under state law to children of all other races. And he lost his case, the court ruled against him, on the grounds that he had not made active efforts because he had not allowed the children to have contact with the birth mother. Of course, the reason that he had not allowed the children to have contact with the birth mother is because she was a neglectful and inappropriate guardian for the children. So the very fact that he had taken steps to protect his own children was held against him and found to be grounds for denying him the, the, the relief that he sought in an effort to protect his own children. This ruling does absolutely nothing to prevent the removal of Indian children from their birth parents by state or federal agencies and their forced assimilation into white culture, which is what ICWA was passed for 40 years ago. This was simply a statute that denies a Native American parent the right to take actions to protect his own child as he sees fit. And unfortunately, it's definitely not an isolated incident. In a case in Washington state a couple years ago called TAW, a birth mother, a Native American birth mother, sought to sever the parental rights of a white non-Indian birth father who was abusive, was a repeat criminal, had been in jail many times for, uh, for crimes, 
She was supported in her efforts by the tribal government, and we supported her also as amicus curiae in the case. But the court ruled that even though the birth father was not a Native American, he could use the Indian Child Welfare Act to block the efforts of the birth mother to terminate parental rights of the birth father. In another case we worked on uh, not long ago in Arizona called JPC, very interesting set of facts. In that case, an Indian birth mother who's a tribal member but lives off reservation sought to terminate the rights, the parental rights of her former spouse, again, with a criminal record and so forth. She considered him unfit. And she wanted to, to, to terminate the parental rights. Had she lived on reservation, the tribal law would have applied and the tribal law would have permitted that termination to go forward because the tribal law was the same as Arizona law on this subject. So had the mother not been a member of a tribe, but been a white, black, Asian, or Hispanic American living in a suburb near Tucson, she would have been allowed to terminate parental rights under state law. And had she lived on reservation, she would have been able to terminate parental rights under tribal law. But because she's a tribal member living off reservation, the child qualifies as an Indian child under ICWA, and ICWA went into place with its much higher, more severe burden that barred her from making that choice to protect the best interests of her children. These and many other cases illustrate how ICWA harms the very people that allegedly it's, it was designed to benefit. And it does so in order to benefit tribal government interests rather than the interests of, of children. And the way that it does this, there's multiple ways. I'll go through a few of them. One is, the, is, as I've mentioned, the different burdens of proof for termination of parental rights. It requires a beyond a reasonable doubt evidentiary standard with uh, testimony from expert witnesses, which is a higher standard than is applied in criminal cases where you send somebody to jail for life. That is a very severe standard. In fact, it's a, it's a standard so severe that the US Supreme Court refused to apply it in Santosky versus Kramer on the grounds that such a severe burden would make it too difficult for the state to protect children in cases where termination of parental rights is appropriate. The racial categorization that ICWA applies to adoption and foster care that make it virtually impossible for Indian children in need to find the loving permanent adoptive homes that they need to, to survive and thrive. And these racial categories that make it incredibly difficult for a, a Native American child to find a, an adoptive home with a non-Indian, these categories apply to Indians generally. If you read the statute, it says an Indian family, any Indian family. It doesn't say members of the same tribe, which means that ICWA applies to Indian children not on the basis of tribal affiliation, but on the basis of Indian Indianness generically. But the very concept of generic Indianness is a racist white construct that was forced on Indians by settlers. It's absurd that this is written into the statute. ICWA overrides the best interests of the children standard that applies under state law and is generally considered the lodestar of all cases involving child welfare. In fact, the Texas courts and some other courts have ruled that the best interests of the child standard is a racist construct that shouldn't be applied to Indian children. In, uh, uh, in the, the, the Lexi case two years ago, the California Court of Appeal literally created a separate but equal standard, literally. It said that for children of other racial groups, the best interests of the child, is, that's the most important consideration. But when it comes to Indian children, the best interests is, quote, one of a constellation of factors, end quote, for the court to consider. So there are two separate best interests considerations depending on the child's genetics.
Personal jurisdiction is a, is a major problem in ICWA cases that has virtually never been resolved by a court. To my awareness, only one court has actually decided this issue, and that's the Ohio Court of Appeals just last year in a case that we're litigating. ICWA purports to extend personal jurisdiction of tribal courts, or at least allow the assertion of personal jurisdiction by tribal courts over children anywhere in the United States based on, their, on, on the blood in their veins. No minimum contacts there. The standard rule for, for personal jurisdiction under the Constitution, under the Due Process Clause, is that no, tr no uh, a tribunal can decide a case over parties who have no minimum contacts with that tribunal. A California court can't decide a case involving a car accident in Maine by two people who have lived in Maine all their lives. But under ICWA, tribal courts assert personal jurisdiction over children regardless of their residency simply because of their ancestry. Federalism concerns come to the forefront in ICWA also. The Constitution does not allow Congress any authority to pass a general adoption, foster care, or child welfare statute for the United States. There just is no such constitutional authority. When this issue is raised, usually the response is, yes, but Congress has plenary authority over Indians. Where is that in the Constitution? The Constitution, to my knowledge, extends plenary authority in only two cases. One is over territories of the United States, where, such as the District of Columbia, and the second is in military matters. Are we really going to say that ICWA was passed as a military measure? I don't think so. And it certainly wasn't passed as a treaty. Even if it were passed as a treaty, it would still be unconstitutional in this regard under Reed versus Covert, a Supreme Court case from the 1950s that said even when acting under the authority as military commander or, or through a treaty, Congress cannot force US citizens into a tribunal where their due process rights are not fully protected. And that is the case in ICWA cases that force litigants into tribal court where they don't have the ability, thanks to the Indian Civil Rights Act's mis, uh, mis construal by the US Supreme Court to appeal like they would from some ordinary court, by which I mean state courts that are governed by the, the normal appellate process. Now, it's a very good development, I think, that we've seen state attorneys general in Texas, Louisiana, Ohio, and Indiana step forward on this issue. And, and they've recognized that they have a duty to defend both the authority of the state to protect their children and the, the, the best interests of children within their jurisdiction. And I, I, I applaud those attorneys general. I hope very much that other attorneys general will do the same. In discussing this issue, though, I have found that it's not really a legal objection that my opponents have, have raised. Instead, it appears to me more of a psychological objection, and that is, it seems to me that people often just habitually think that when we're talking about Indian children in the United States, that we're talking about foreigners. That we're talking about, because Indian children you know, have, have a relationship to a tribal government which has retained sovereignty, people sort of assume that when we're talking about Indian children, it's similar to like when we talk about children from Russia or China or Spain or something. But there's a crucial difference. Indians are not foreigners. All Native Americans are citizens of the United States, entitled to the same equal protection of the laws as members of every other racial category. And they're denied that under this statute. They're deprived of the protections that they need in order to satisfy the desires of tribal governments that, uh, in ICWA's own terms, define children as, quote, tribal resources. That's a shame, and it, it harms the people who need protection the most.
The only sensible solution is to prioritize the best interests of children and the best interests of parents above all other considerations in all child welfare cases. Thank you. Matthew. Hello, and thank you, Walter, and thank you to the Cato Institute for having me here today. Um, as you've heard, I'm the lead lawyer for the plaintiffs in a case called Brackeen versus Zinke, which is now pending in the Northern District of Texas before Judge Reed O'Connor in uh, Fort Worth. I thought I'd just tell you a little bit about how I uh, came to be an ICWA lawyer and, uh, and just a little bit about our case. and. Uh, and the, the arguments that we're making there. Um, I actually uh, kind of married into ICWA uh, several years back. My wife represented the birth mother in the baby girl case. Uh, so she, he, uh, she represented the, the woman that, that uh, Charles's client uh, had baby Veronica with. Um, and that was my first exposure to ICWA. And we, uh, we, I kind of observed that saga uh, from afar to its conclusion. And then my wife then later went on to represent uh, some foster parents in California in the uh, what uh, Tim referred to as the, the Lexi case. Um, and it was uh, against that background that uh, the uh, Chad and Jennifer Brackeen uh, contacted my wife desperate for help um, in their adoption case in Texas. And uh, they were desperate for help because uh, they had been the foster parents to a child for uh, about two years, and they had petitioned to adopt that child. The, the child, of, of course, was, a, was an Indian child. The parental rights of both parents uh, had, had been terminated pursuant to ICWA's very stringent terms. Uh, and Nevertheless, though, both parents um, did quite uh, support the adoption of, of this child by the Brackeens. Um, ICWA, however, as Tim has described, it imposes a standard, not, not the normal best interests of the child standard that would apply in, in any, you know, any child custody case across the country. It, it instead it applies a uh, kind of a, a series of placement preferences, the, there's a, three of them. The first is any, uh, any family member of the child. The second is any family in the tribe of the Indian child. And the third is any Indian family at all, which is to say any family of any of 500 plus federally recognized Indian tribes. And to overcome those placement preferences under regulations that were promulgated by the Department of Interior in 2016, uh, you have to demonstrate clear and convincing evidence that it, you have to show, in the words of the statute, good cause. And under the regulation, you needed to show evidence of good cause, clear and convincing evidence that good cause existed to deviate from the placement preferences, which is to say, to allow in the Brackeens case, the Brackeens who are not an Indian family to allow the Brackeens to adopt uh, the child known in the case as uh, ALM. Well, um, 
There was no uh, comp there was no competing adoptive couple in that case, uh, but the Navajo Nation, which was uh, the the tribe tribe of record, the the uh, baby ALM was uh, his mother was uh, a member of the Navajo Nation. His father is a member of the Cherokee Nation, and they the tribal representatives met in the hallway immediately before the adoption proceeding to decide which tribe would would get uh, baby ALM, and they decided that it would be the Navajos. Um, the, the Navajo uh, nation said that they had found a, an, an alternative placement for him uh, with non-family members in New Mexico. And, uh, and the state of Texas uh, and the Navajo nation argued that Although the parents support the birth parents supported the adoption by the Brackeens, and although it was unrebutted that uh, it would do great damage to this uh, somewhat troubled two-year-old to uh, remove him from uh, his the only parents really he said he had ever known, um, that nevertheless the Brackeens had not shown good cause by clear and convincing evidence and. The family court in Texas uh, agreed with the state and with the tribe and held that uh, the adoption petition must be denied and that the child um, in due course would be transferred uh, to these um, strangers in New Mexico. So it was against that background that the Brackeens had uh, contacted my wife and she was not able to uh, get involved in the case. So uh, I said, well, that, that sounds like something uh, we could take on. And I called one of, my, uh, one of my colleagues in our Dallas office and she put on her cape and ran into family court in Fort Worth and got the judge to issue a, a stay of, of the ruling that the child be transferred, um, which uh, bought us a little bit of time. Uh, and then uh, while, while the appellate proceeding was to uh, take place in the Texas state courts, we decided also to file a federal action in, uh, in, in the Northern District of Texas in Fort Worth where the Brackeens live, uh, challenging the constitutionality of ICWA and challenging the validity of the uh, regulations. And specifically, we were really targeting this clear and convincing standard that the regulations uh, impose. Um, we raised several arguments. Um, I'm just going to focus on two of them as to uh, why we think ICWA is unconstitutional. Um, the the first, and this is the one I think that Tim you know hit on quite a bit, is it is our contention that ICWA violates the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution because it discriminates against on the basis of race. And we say that it discriminates on the basis of race in two different ways. One is that it obviously discriminates on the basis of race when you deny uh, non-Indian families such as the Brackeens uh, the same opportunity to adopt children as you would give to uh, any of any family member, uh, any family of any of 500 plus Indian tribes. The other way, and perhaps even more uh, obvious, I guess, is that the that ICWA creates uh, two separate legal regimes governing child custody uh, matters in the in this country, 
If you are a non-Indian child, you go through one door and your child, your custody and placement will be governed by the best interests of the child in 50 states and every territory in the United States. If you are an Indian child, you go through a different door. And it is not the best interests of the child that govern. It is instead these placement preferences, which Congress has deemed to uh, coincide, I suppose, with the, with the best interests of the child. We think that that, that, discri that discrimination uh, is discrimination on the basis of race. And obviously, there's a great disagreement about that um, because there are cases from the Supreme Court from the 1970s and some later that, uh, that say that you can have classifications based on membership in an Indian tribe. Uh, those are valid, uh, at least in some circumstances. And there's a case uh, subsequent to that from 2000 called Rice versus Cayetano, which... Um, says, well, that's, th those cases are certainly stand for what they stand for. You can have hiring preferences for members of Indian tribes at the Bureau of Indian Affairs. That's the Morton versus Moncari case. And you can have uh, special rules about, you know, that are per applicable only to members of Indian tribes on, uh, on Indian uh, reservations and Indian lands. But... Um, when you are dealing with a critical affair of the state, to use the words of Rice versus Cayetano, that kind of discrimination is really just a proxy for race. That's also the words of Rice versus Cayetano. So we argue that, well, an adoption proceeding, a child custody proceeding is in state court is by definition an affair of the state and a critical one at that. We have, you know, a Supreme Court case, uh, Palmore versus Sadati says you, you can't there there is nothing more important than the safety of children and it is obviously a critical affair of the state to these proceedings that really safeguard the the these children or is intended to safeguard these children so that's the equal protection theory that's the one that everyone thinks about um, when you think about constitutional challenges to ICWA and that is in per, perhaps because of the it was raised um, in the baby girl case, uh, especially by the guardian ad litem in, in that case. Um, the other major challenge that we're bringing is, um, is a challenge to, uh, under the 10th Amendment of the Constitution and under what is known as the anti-commandeering doctrine. And we argue that the, that ICWA impermissibly commandeers the resources of state courts and state agencies and commands state courts and state agencies to carry out federal objectives. One of the unusual features of ICWA is that there is no federal uh, official or federal court that carries it out. It is carried out only by state courts and state social workers. But they, they are required to carry this law out in accordance with ICWA's uh, mandates. And it is our contention that that is an impermissible commandeering of the resources of, uh, of the states. You have uh, a situation here where 
particularly under the new regulations, state agencies have a, a list of mandates that they must follow. Well, the Supreme Court in 1997 in a case called Prince said you, you cannot, the federal government cannot tell chiefs of police in various municipalities that they have to do gun background checks. Well, if that's true, then they can't tell state social workers that they have to, you know, use this particular checklist because the child is an Indian child. And we say, you know, and we argue that the, that a, you cannot, on the same theory, make a state court carry out this federal law in this, in a state cause of action. Here you have a, it's a state proceeding carried out under state law. It's not, it is not a state court carrying out a, you know, a, a federal cause of action, it's a state adoption proceeding. Yet here comes the federal government telling the state court, this is what you have to do. If the federal government under the 10th Amendment wants to do that, uh, it can, but it is our contention that, you know, then the federal government needs to allow for federal jurisdiction of those cases and would have to have, you know, federal courts be the one that, that adjudicate it. You can't make a state commit its state judicial resources to carry out ICWA in this way. So um, those are the two main arguments uh, that we raise, and I'm sure uh, Charles is going to do his very best to dismantle them now. Thank you, Charles. Well, thank you, Walter, uh, for your generous introduction. Um, and, and thank you, Matt and Tim, for appearing in the panel, which I think you both presented some very interesting interesting points. I mean, ICWA is a very important statute, and it should be talked about a, a lot. Uh, as Walter mentioned in his introduction, I argued uh, the adopt a couple versus baby girl case for uh, the Indian father for Dustin Brown, a member of the Cherokee Nation. And, and Walter was generous enough not to mention the outcome of the case that I, I lost. Um, and I have to say that you know I've I've lost a lot of cases in many courts, and of all the cases that I've lost, I thought the adoptive couple decision uh, was the one that I felt the worst about, and the one that I thought was the worst and most harmful decision. Uh, notwithstanding how the case came out, though, the Supreme Court in adoptive couple I think did not really question the central premises of, of ICWA, and and given the discussion that we've had here, I think it's useful to sort of go back and, and talk a little bit about why we have an ICWA in, in the first place. Uh, there, there is no denying the nature and the importance of the problem that ICWA addresses. And I, and I think as Tim briefly alluded to, everybody who knows anything about ICWA is familiar with the kind of grotesque abuses that led to the enactment of the statute uh, 40 years ago. Uh, through the 19th and much of the 20th centuries, the state governments, state child welfare authorities, the federal government, uh, had dramatically sort of taken a policy essentially as a, as a matter of, of official policy of separating Indian children from their parents. And I think people are familiar with the history of boarding schools in which the, the, the policy was, you know, kill the Indian, save the man. Uh, there, there were policies of kidnapping essentially Indian children and putting them into, into state custody. Uh, of taking Indian children away from their parents and putting them in, in foster care simply because they were brought up in a traditional Indian way. Uh, the, the worst abuses had probably vanished by the time ICWA was enacted, but even at that time, the problem remained an enormously serious one. 
as Congress found when it enacted it, after four years of hearings, after making extensive factual findings, at that time, somewhere between 25 and 35 percent of all Indian children were either in foster care, adoptive care, or institutional care away from Indian, their Indian parents, which is a remarkable thing when you think about it. That it was eight times the average, the, the national average level Indian children being removed from their parents as opposed to, to children of other ethnicities. 90% uh, of these children were placed with, with non-Indians. Uh, and so congressional findings addressing these problems found that the current, the existing uh, system of child custody as it applied to Indian children at that time threatened the survival of Indian tribes and was harmful to the Indian children themselves, was harmful to the children and to their parents. Uh, Congress found that children benefited from being brought up in the tribal environment, that they were damaged by being taken away from it, being raised away from their culture, being raised away from their history, uh, and so it enacted ICWA as a response to that. Um, the problems that ICWA meant to address remain problems. It continues to be the case that in at, least, at least in some jurisdictions that child, state child social welfare workers continue to re regard Indian sort of cultural traditions of child raising as being sort of per se improper, impermissible, harmful to the children. And so children are taken away from Indian parents by foster parents at eight times the level applied to, to other ethnic groups. Um, it remains the case that many Indian children are taken away from their parents on grounds that I think viewed objectively simply don't make any sense. Uh, and so the problems that Kikwa was meant to address uh, remain, in, remain in place. Uh, they continue to be a problem for Indian parents, for Indian children, uh, and for the tribes. So I, I think against this background, everybody agrees that ICWA was intended to do something good. It was intended to address a real problem and do something to, to, to ameliorate that problem. Uh, so against that background, what is wrong with ICWA? And I think that there are objections of two sorts that have been made, and we've heard them both uh, today. One is that as written and as applied, ICWA harms Indian children uh, harms their parents, makes the adoption of Indian children more difficult, uh, and, and this, is a, this is a bad thing. Uh, and the other sort of flip side of that is ICWA anyway is unconstitutional, um, that it applies racial categories, and as Matt mentioned, there's this additional argument that it, it, it commandeers state uh, institutions into the federal bureaucracy, and that is, uh, violates the Constitution. Um, and I'll, I'll briefly take on both of those points uh, this morning, although I think I'll, I'll, I'll try to be brief so we have a lot of time for discussion. Um, you know, on the first, the question, does ICWA apply a standard that is harmful to children and to, to their parents? Uh, that I simply disagree with. I think ICWA standards are the right ones. And that's not just my view, and it's not just the view of the tribes. Uh, in the adoptive couple case, uh, the Casey Family Foundation and the Children's Defense Fund and 16 other organizations that are dedicated to the uh, safeguarding of children filed a brief supporting our position, supporting the, the arguments of Dustin Brown, the Cherokee father, uh, written by Patricia Millette, who's now a judge on the DC Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, and their view was that ICWA actually sets the gold standard for child custody case cases. And just quoting from the brief and what, and what uh, Judge Millette said there, ICWA embodies the best practices for child custody decisions. ICWA works very well and in fact is a model for child welfare and placement decisions that should be extended to all children. Now, our position in the baby girl case was supported not just by those organizations and by members of Congress and by the tribes, but by 19 states, no states filed against us in that case, and by the United States, which has a trust responsibility to advance the best interests of Indian children and of the tribes generally. 
all of those institutions and organizations and governmental groups found that ICWA worked properly and that it was helping children, helping Indian children, helping their parents. Um, so what does ICWA do? You know, as we've heard, it, it imposes strict standards before Native American children are placed in foster care or the parental rights of Native American parents are terminated. This is a version, a strict version, but it's a version of the principle that is universally advanced by child welfare authorities in the states under state law, which is that natural families should be preserved whenever possible. The parental rights of natural parents should not be terminated unless they absolutely have to be. Uh, and where it can be done, that the natural biological family should be kept intact. And there is extensive data demonstrating that where that can be done, even when the family is dysfunctional at first, when they can, the dysfunction can be addressed and the problems can be, can be taken care of uh, and ameliorated, that results in much better outcomes for children uh, and, and, and for their parents. Um, and anybody who doubts this, I, I can point you to the Casey Family Foundation brief in Baby Girl, which, which assembles the data at considerable length. Um, ICWA also, as, as we've heard, establishes adoption placement preferences, uh, first for the family of the, of the child, then for members of the child's tribe, and then for members of other tribes. Um, this, at least the first two portions of that are, are also standard. It, it, is, it is characteristic of foster and adoptive placements to place children with their relatives and to place them with members of the community with which they're familiar. And that is just what ICWA is designed to do and what it does do. Uh, and Congress found that this was in the best interest of the child, that Indian children were damaged by being removed from their sort of cultural background uh, and from the, the, uh, the areas and institutions with which they were familiar. Uh, and ICWA was designed to, to address that. Um, it is sometimes said that the problem with ICWA is that it makes it more difficult for Indian children to be placed for adoption. And in the baby girl case, Justice Sotomayor in her dissent found this a perplexing argument. As she pointed out, the whole point of ICWA is to make adoption of Indian children unnecessary by preserving the Indian family. And that is why ICWA requires that, it, that steps be taken wherever possible to provide that where a family is dysfunction, dysfunctional and when, when a parent is absent or is, or is uninvolved, that steps be taken to make sure that they are, are invited to participate in the, in the upbringing of the child before adoption or foster care is invoked. There are lots of horror stories that are used, and Tim recited some of them, about application of ICWA. And I'm not familiar with all of Tim's, Tim's cases, so I can't respond to them directly here. What, what I can say is that in any, any statute or program that involves hundreds or thousands of people, as ICWA does, it is very easy to find, cherry pick the cases that try to prove your point. I can say without doubt that state child welfare uh, institutions and adoptions and foster care placements also lead to you know, horror stories that can be pointed to on the other side. I live in the District of Columbia. If you live in the district, you can read in the Washington Post uh, you know, with some frequency horrible cases of things that happen in, in foster care not involving Indian children because the state foster care, district foster care system kind of ran off the track and something terrible happened. So one can argue by, by anecdote and by horror story, but I think you have to step back and look at the broader set of how the statute and how the program applies uh, across the board. Um, I think just one example, Baby Girl itself is, uh, demonstrates how many of the things that go wrong in ICWA follow not from the 
application of ICWA, but from the fact that ICWA is being misapplied or was uh, not, or that, it, that its procedures were not followed. In Baby Girl, for example, it, it, it ended with a, a, you know, something that, that I think everybody who saw it thought was a, was a very painful situation. The baby Veronica was initially removed from the adoptive couple and, and returned to, to, to Dustin. And then after she lived with her Indian family for 18 months, was removed from Dustin and returned to the adoptive couple, which was you know, very painful for, for baby Veronica. The reason this happened was because ICWA was not followed in the first place. When the, the child was initially put up for adoption, Dustin wasn't informed. The Cherokee Nation was not informed that Dustin, that the father was a member of the Cherokee Nation. The, the, the lawyers for the, um, the adoptive couple sent the wrong name, misspelling of Dustin's name, mis, uh, misidentified his birth date to the Cherokee Nation so they didn't realize that he was a member of the tribe. Uh, when the adoptive mother filled out forms to send baby Veronica out of Oklahoma to South Carolina where the, where the adoptive family lived. She identified the baby as Hispanic and not as, as Native American. Had she identified the baby as Native American, the Oklahoma Child Welfare Authorities would never allow the transfer to take place. And so none of the pain that followed from the baby Veronica situation would have happened had the standards required by ICWA, had the steps required by ICWA in fact been followed. Um, now finally, on, on, on the constitutional question, uh, I think that it is settled by Supreme Court decisions, some of which Matt mentioned, that classification of, of Native Americans uh, is a political classification and is not a racial classification. Uh, the Supreme Court has applied that on a number of occasions. Lower courts have applied it, that, that understanding consistently across the board. Uh, I, I think that that is right in this context. I mean, if you look, for example, at the US citizenship law, as, as Ted Cruz could tell you, uh, if you are born to US parents, outside the United States, you are a US citizen. Um, that is not a racial classification, that's a political classification. If you're born to, pay, to Canadian parents outside the United States, you are not a US citizen. That is a political and not a racial classification. And I have no doubt that it would be constitutional as a political and not a racial determination if uh, the United States or a state were to put in place um, preferential adoption uh, placement standards that said that there is a preference given to um, U.S. citizen foster parents or U.S. citizen adoption uh, adopted parents if the child is a U.S. citizen. Uh, and that is essentially what ICWA does. Um, on, on the state commandeering point, that which, which Matt mentioned, um, I have not sort of looked at the briefing on this. I guess my, my off-the-cuff reaction is ICWA requires state courts to apply federal law. State courts in a wide variety of contexts, the Supreme Court has settled they are courts of the United States and federal law applies in state court just as applies in, in federal court. And if states want to apply uh, their adoption and child welfare policies, they are governed by state law just as federal courts are. And I think that is what equal does to the state courts here. So I, I am very dubious about this commandeering argument. Um, and on that, I think I'll... Thank you. <clears throat> um, let me start by inviting the... Uh, three panelists to respond to each other's presentations. Uh, after that, I have been saving up a few questions that I might ask them myself as uh, under the moderator's privilege. But uh, let's start. Uh, Tim, you, any responses to what you have heard? Uh, well, there's a lot to cover. I, let me just say with regard to Mankari, because the Mankari uh, argument is routinely uh, brought up, and that is 
it is true. The Mankari case said that the differential treatment between tribal members and non-tribal members with regard to hiring preferences at the BIA was constitutional. Uh, and it rejected the argument that that was a racial classification. And then in a footnote said, we are not here discussing a situation that distinguishes between Indians generally and non-Indians. And that's relevant. That was echoed, by the way, in a follow-up case called Antelope that said the same thing. And that reservation of the issue is important because ICWA does not apply just to tribal members. ICWA applies to children who are eligible for tribal membership and have a biological parent who is a tribal member. And eligibility for membership, of course, differs from tribe to tribe, but it is based universally on genetics. And as a result, a child like Lexi, for example, in the California case, who has no cultural, political, or social affiliation with the tribe, has never lived on, perhaps never visited a reservation, has no connection to the tribe except for the DNA in her blood cells, is deemed to be an Indian child under ICWA. Whereas a child who is fully acculturated to a tribe, who resides on reservation, but has no, but lacks the required blood quantum of that tribe or doesn't have the bio, uh, a biological parent who is a tribal member, is not deemed an Indian under ICWA. What's, this is a very remarkable situation. As a result, a person like Sam Houston, the famous hero of Texas history, who was an adopted member of the Cherokee tribe and was the Cherokee ambassador to the United States, would not be deemed an Indian child under ICWA, even though he was raised by a Cherokee chief from the age of 16 because he lacks a biological parent who is a child, or, I mean, a, a tribal member. If you're familiar with the novel The Round House by Louise Erdrich, the, one of the main characters, Laura, Linda Wishkob, in that book is uh, raised by tribal members as a, because she's been adopted by tribal members on the reservation, speaks the tribal language. She would not qualify as an Indian child under ICWA because she doesn't have a biological parent who's a tribal member. So the only factor that counts in ICWA is genetics. No other, no amount of cultural, political, or social affiliation will make a person an Indian child under ICWA regardless. And, and that's significant because as the California courts have pointed out, there's a difference between tribal membership and Indian child status. Tribal membership is entirely a matter of tribal law. It's, not, it's nobody else's business. But Indian child status under ICWA is a question of federal law that's determined by federal and state courts under ICWA and therefore must comply with the standards uh, set forth in the Constitution. With regard to the gold standard soundbite, the gold standard soundbite is tried it out every time I speak about ICWA, and I find it amusing. Um, it is simply not a gold standard for a fe the federal Congress to pass a nationwide law that says that courts should prioritize the best interests of white children, but not the best interests of one particular racial category. That is not a gold standard. It's really disgraceful. Um, those are the two things that come to mind, Walter, but I'll pass it along. Okay. Matt? Uh, thank you. So, you know, I, I guess I, I look at this situation, I, I look at ICWA through the lens of my clients, the Brackeens. And I, I suppose one could dismiss their, their case and their situation as merely an anecdote. But that is how uh, every, every case in the Supreme Court is an anecdote of its own, uh, certainly baby girl, the baby girl versus adoptive couple cases and an anecdote unto itself. I, I don't think uh, the law, to, it simply can be said that uh, 
that the legal arguments raised by the Brackeens uh, ought to be dismissed because uh, they, they are outnumbered uh, by other more uh, routine applications of ICWA. I think the, the right way to look at it, in fact, is that if, if there are these horrible ap misapplications of ICWA or, or horrible applications of ICWA that are out there, that should make us question whether ICWA actually is a statute that is not adequately tailored to its legitimate goals. If the legitimate goal, and I would, uh, I would say that it is, you know, I might disagree with Tim here, but I, I would say that it, it is a legitimate goal to prevent, to, to have uh, some effort by the federal government to prevent the unjustified breakup of Indian families. But what does that have to do with the child the Brackeen is trying to adopt, who you know, never was a member of any Indian family, whose parents were you know, terrible drug addicts, uh, whose rights were terminated pursuant to ICWA, who, can, who actually supported the Brackeen's adoption of the child. What, what does that have to do with the, the legitimate applications of ICWA or the, the applications of ICWA that that seem to be the ones that every everyone seems to say are what was you know forefront in the mind of Congress. I mean, the, this was not a child who was shunted off to to some boarding school for no reason at all. Um, I did want to address, I guess, a couple of the substantive points that Charles had made. Um, one is. The, the idea that, that the ICWA standards are the gold standard and should be applied to, to all children. And I would just ask, you know, how would that work precisely? Uh, would it, is it really the gold standard that for, for all, all children of, that, that there is a placement preference, first with their immediate family, second with members of any Indian tribe, and uh, second for members of their tribe, and third for any any member of any Indian tribe? Of course not. That's not, you know, that, that, that's like a strange mismatch uh, for, for most children. It makes no sense at all. But in fact, what the Casey Family Foundation brief was talking about was just the first placement preference, that you know, placing children with their family is the gold standard. And that is, you know, I think most states start with the presumption that being with your family is in the best interest of the child. So that's what the Casey Family Foundation was talking about. ICWA's preferences obviously could not be applied to, you know, in a gold or silver, bronze, or any other way to any other racial category of, of people. Um, you know, Charles highlighted the second preference uh, in ICWA, which is the uh, the preference for any any family in the Indian tribe, and Charles. You analogize that or, or said that is just like placing a child in the community with which they are familiar. And, you know, that, that might be true in some circumstances, but in many circumstances, it is not. In many circumstances, the child has no connection whatsoever to any Indian tribe, right? I mean, the, the, other than their genetic tie, so it's not a community with which they are familiar in the ordinary sense of the term familiar. It's a community that they have a genetic tie to. And 
that is, I don't think, is, would reflect any kind of a gold standard at all. Um, and then the third, but we didn't hear much about the third placement preference, which is, I think, was what reveals ICWA to be racial and not political in nature. And the third placement preference is that you know, better, better that the child be placed with any member of any of 500 plus Indian tribes than somebody who is not a member of an Indian tribe. And if it is true that being an Indian is like, you know, being a member of the Navajo Nation is like being Canadian, if that is true, then, then it is, it simply, then what is to say, how would you categorize all 500 and plus federally recognized Indian tribes? I think it's a 573 currently. How would you categorize all 573 Indian tribes? They're not, they, those are 573 individual nations. They're 573 individual political communities. If they can all just be wrapped up under the passel of Indian, how is that any different from the travel ban cases where we, you know, well, we pick these countries and they all have majority Muslim countries. Uh, they're all majority Muslim populations. Uh, maybe they're, maybe we're, they're all just Muslim countries. I think it's pretty obvious that if you classify a group as broad as 573 federally recognized Indian tribes and say you're all one thing, you're talking about their race and not their political identity. Um, so that's why I think that ICWA ultimately will, will be found to be racial in nature and not, uh, not political in nature. Um, with respect to the uh, the anti-commandeering argument. I think, you know, I, Charles, you know, is is a, at a disadvantage because I briefed the issue and he he's not he's hearing it for the first time. But the, if Charles were arguing against me, he would he would have pulled out the case Testa versus Cat, and Testa versus Cat is the case that says you know federal courts, uh, state courts have to apply federal law, and you know the the difference here is that that's that of course is true, that's absolutely true. State courts cannot refuse to apply federal law. They cannot refuse to entertain a federal cause of action because the, uh, they don't like the federal law. But what's, you know, this is different because here you have the federal court telling a state court how to administer a state proceeding and state law. So this is like telling a state court that you have to use juries of 20 people or that you ha every state has to use a grand jury, or states must use the federal rules of evidence. You know, they can't do that, and that's our contention. And you know, that, that is something, you know, there's no Supreme Court case that's decided that issue yet. You know, uh, it's, gonna, it, it's, uh, it, it's something that you know, the Supreme Court maybe, or courts of appeals are gonna look at for the first time, and Judge O'Connor will you know, opine on it before then. Charles. Well, just make a, a couple of quick responses to those. Um, on the Brackeen case, which I'm not really familiar with, I, I know that, that it's going on, I know what the issues are, but I haven't you know, read the briefing. Uh, my, my response to, to Matt principally is that we don't, we don't say that Brackeen should lose because their claims are anecdotal. We think their claims should, they should be rejected because they're, they're incorrect. Sure. Um, I just, in response to what's going on in the Brackeen case, if this is, can you hear me? Uh, the point is not that the Brackeen's claim is anecdotal and should be rejected for that 
reason. It's that the Brakeen's claim is wrong and should be rejected because it is incorrect. Um, in terms of the, the best interests of the children standard, uh, which, which Tim has been talking about been quite a bit, Congress, when it enacted ICWA, made extensive factual findings, and it found that, it, generally speaking, it was in the best interest of the Indian child to be raised in an Indian environment, in the Indian culture, um, and that was an important point to take into account when child custody determinations involving Native American children are made. Uh, there was significant evidence that children, Native American children who were se separated from their tribal environment and raised elsewhere had significantly worse outcomes, you know, years after the fact, that it, that it was a real problem for them and had significant adjustment issues. Uh, and so being raised in the Native cultural environment is something that Congress found, and I think that psychologists and child welfare workers will agree, uh, is generally, if it can be done safely for the child, is, is preferable to removing the child from that environment. And so it is an element of the best interest determination for Indian children, as it is for other children in other kind of related contexts, take into account their environment and how they're going to thrive in, in the long term where they're raised. Um, you know, on the gold standard point and the Casey Family Foundation, again, I, I've, it's available online. I encourage people to look at it if you're interested in, in the equal issues. I think that what Casey was really talking about principally was the standard for the termination of parental rights. And I think Casey's point and that of the Child, child, uh, child Defense Fund and the other organizations was that as a general matter, it should be difficult to take children away from their natural parents. Uh, and that significant, serious efforts should be made to reconcile families that have problems and to eliminate familial dysfunction before parental rights are terminated. Uh, and Casey Foundation found that that standard, as, as articulated in ICWA, was the gold standard and that more states should take use of it. Some states do have something which approaches that, and, and that is, at, I think, the gold standard that they were talking about. Um, I sh should say, sort of in connection with that, as well as with the, the preferences that are created by ICWA, you know, obviously these standards are all applied by people. They're applied in the first instance by child welfare workers and then by courts, if family courts get involved. Uh, and the standards have to be applied, you know, with sensitivity to the needs of the children and to the situation of the family. Uh, and there will be situations in which the standards that are set by ICWA can be overborne, that it can be demonstrated by, by the non-Indian adoptive parents, for example, or foster, foster parents, that it is in fact in the best interest of the, of the child to be raised elsewhere and that the standards ICWA establishes for termination of parental rights uh, or for not recognizing claims of the tribe can be overborne. And, and for an example of that is the Holyfield case, which, which Walter mentioned in his introduction, the first Supreme Court case addressing ICWA, in which uh, the tribal court ultimately determined that, in fact, was it best interest of the child to be raised by non-Indian parents. And so the child was returned to an adoptive couple. Uh, so it is not always the case that ICWA requires th that the claimant always, in all situations, be raised by an Indian family or an Indian or by the natural Indian parents. Uh, the interest of the child, as ICWA determines, as ICWA mandates, have to be taken into account. Um, you know, on the third placement preference that, that Matt had mentioned, the, the, I think most of these cases, almost all equal cases, are resolved in terms of either the family of the, of the child or the child's tribe. Um, you know, in terms of whether all Indians is something that can be constitutionally taken into account, I, I guess I would say that just as if you have a U.S. citizen child who is, who is being placed up for adoption, 
uh, it would be permissible for the United States to say that it would be preferable that for that child to be placed with a U.S. citizen uh, adoptive parents in any of the 50 states, not just in the state in which the child was born or the child, uh, the child had been returned. Um, and I think that the 500 Indian tribes that Matt mentioned are substantially similar to that. They, they all have, have common kind of cultural backgrounds, just as the 50 U.S. states have common political and, and cultural and related backgrounds. Um, and I think it makes sense in that context for Congress to have said that if you're trying to preserve uh, the child's cultural identity and look for the place where the child will thrive best, it makes sense to look at any of these tribes, just as it would make sense for, you know, for Congress to say that if you want to deal with the placement of a U.S. citizen child, any U.S. citizen anywhere has advantages to over a non-U.S. citizen. Um, you know, on, on finally, on, on the commandeering point, um, I, I look forward to reading Matt's briefs, and uh, I, I will I'll think about my answers and send them along. <laughs> well, th thank you for that crosstalk, which managed to answer almost all of the questions that I had saved up. Um, but there are still a couple left, and I was hoping to ask uh, them as the first questions of our discussion. Uh, first, a, a factual question about how the law works. One of the things that often, I think, shocks libertarians is the idea that under ICWA, sometimes even if both birth parents to a child would like an adoption uh, to a non-Indian family, uh, that ICWA can, can stand in its way. And so the, the question comes up, uh, could they get themselves out of ICWA by renouncing their tribal affiliation? Am I right in assuming that it is the language about eligible for membership rather than actual membership that would keep them from doing that? Or is there some other reason why it wouldn't work? Uh, no, I think it, was, it would be the birth parent who is a tribal member is what, is what would be relevant there. And, the, and the, the word is there would then mean that re resigning tribal membership would bar the application of ICWA. There, we've been involved in a case in, on just that issue actually in, um, I'm starting to get them mixed up in my head. I think that was the South Dakota case where the mother resigned her tribal membership because the tribe was not going to allow the adoption to proceed. Okay, so in the cases like Holyfield, and I think another one came up in which both parents' wishes were being overridden, the, the answer is that the parents had not renounced tribal the affiliation. Case, yeah. Um, okay, uh, and then my second question, also from a libertarian standpoint, is. Uh, the one thing that most libertarians know about the uh, child welfare system is that state CPS agencies, child protective service agencies, have all sorts of power to come in and take your children, uh, whether or not you have really been uh, a terrible parent. And you can barely open an issue of Reason magazine without finding another outrage where out of control state CPSs uh, have yanked a child out of a household where the child might have done okay. Uh, so that brings us directly to the question. Uh, raised, I think, by Charles earlier, which is that if there is this unevenness between um, ICWA, under which the biological parents get more rights, and other states where those rights are not respected, why not even it out by giving parents more rights in the other states? Why isn't that the libertarian answer? I'm not sure that there's a, a categorically libertarian answer to this question, but you're absolutely right that um, not only, I mean, CPS services are... Uh, are regrettable in many ways. It's not just that. I mean, Arizona has just had uh, our own big controversy a few years ago about the, the, the Children Protection Services. Uh, my first answer, of course, is if that is the better standard, it should apply to all. 
it, and it's unconstitutional and racially discriminatory to apply it to only one group and not another. But my second answer to that is, I think the Supreme Court did the best it could in resolving that in Santosky versus Kramer, when it says that the standard of evidence should be clear and convincing evidence, not uh, mere preponderance, which would make it too easy to take children away from their parents, and not beyond a reasonable doubt, which would make it too hard to remove children from their parents in cases where that's necessary. And the court in Santosky says, by the way, the, 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 the beyond a reasonable doubt standard is so extreme and so burdensome on child protection, I'm paraphrasing, um, that we know of only one statute that has that standard, and that's ICWA, which of course wasn't before the court. But you can tell the, the, the concerns were, were on the court's mind when it said that applying a beyond a reasonable doubt standard would, would create an unnecessary burden on freeing children who need uh, to be freed from from those uh, from bad circumstances. So my answer to that would be: I think the the um, clear and convincing standard should apply across the board on termination parental rights. Okay. Any other did, comments? Yeah. On the on the eligibility question, I think it it uh, I think it just very much depends on the the particular circumstances, and it depends a lot on the tribal membership rules. There are some tribes that automatically enroll children upon birth. So, you know, the, even if the parents resigned in that circumstance, the child is automatically uh, in, is is a member of the tribe and therefore subject to ICWA, okay. um, whatever the parents decide. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I agree with with Matt on that. But on Walter, on, on your second question, um, I think that it would be it could be unconstitutional to have separate st uh, standards for. Indian children in ICWA and for uh, other children not under ICWA, only if ICWA creates a racial classification. I mean, Congress established the standard limited to Indian children in ICWA because Congress has authority only to regulate as to Indian children. It does not have authority to set a child welfare, child custody standards for the states generally. Um, and so that was not an issue. I think it could, uh, again, it could, it could be a constitutional equal protection problem only if it is a racial classification for the reasons that that I've said. I think it's it's our position, my position, that, that, that it's not. Uh, I, I do think that the question then that Walter raises uh, is an interesting one because the fact that there are all these abuses, documented abuses in state child welfare systems that have nothing to do with ICWA, that are not applied by tribes, that are not applied to Indian children, demonstrates that lots of things can go wrong in these systems that have nothing to do with ICWA. And we can, we, again, we could cherry pick and show, gee, the child welfare system as administered by the states is really awful. We ought to make everybody subject to ICWA just for that reason. I think that that would not be the right way of anal analyzing it either. Uh, but it, do it does show that there are lots of problems uh, that have nothing to do with ICWA that are, that are kind of rife in the child welfare system. Okay, thank you. Um, before we turn to audience questions, I wanted to mention that uh, today's lunch is the second in a series of Cato Institute events on uh, adoption policy and related issues. Uh, a couple of months ago, we had a half-day conference uh, which took up such issues as the uh, controversy over religious exemptions in um, uh, uh, child placement and uh, also the uh, problems facing international adoption. Uh, as the series continues, we expect that we will have one devoted to the issue of state uh, child protective services agencies and ways in which they may go too far and, and ways in which policy might want to respond. Um, 
We are now reaching the time for uh, you to ask questions. A few ground notes first. Although today's event is not being live streamed, uh, it is being taped for future availability on the website. So uh, keep that in mind. Uh, in addition, um, uh, part of the ground rules on that, uh, of course, you've already turned off your cell phones, uh, but the, um, uh, we have someone with a microphone, right, from Cato? Yes. Um, when I call on you, please wait for uh, our friend with a microphone to bring it to you uh, so that your voice turns up uh, properly amplified for the tape that we are making. Uh, and when the microphone reaches you, uh, do announce, if you can, your name and affiliation, just so we have a little bit of idea of where we're coming from, even if it's unaffiliated. Um, so uh, first questions, please. Yes. Um, Thank you. <clears throat> My name is Dan Leverance. I'm a staff attorney here in D.C. with the Native American Rights Fund. And I actually, uh, I, I do have a question, but I want to start by correcting a couple of misrepresentations that have been made in this discussion. One, and I think what underlies sort of the great lie about ICWA is that it disregards the best interests of the child. And since we're lawyers and, and there's a statute here, I want to read from the statute. This is 25 U.S.C. 1902, and it says, Congress hereby declares that it is the policy of this nation to protect the best interests of Indian children, I'll repeat, to protect the best interests of Indian children, and to promote the stability and security of Indian tribes and families by the establishment of minimum federal standards for the removal of Indian children from their families and the placement of such children in foster and adoptive homes, which will reflect the unique values of Indian culture and by providing assistance to Indian tribes in the operation of child and family service programs. So what ICWA does does not displace the best interests of the family standard. What ICWA does is create a presumption that the standards established by ICWA are in the best interests of a child and that a state court may not simply reflexively cite best interests to circumvent ICWA. What it must do is demonstrate by whatever standard is placed in the statute that it is overcoming that presumption, and that is exactly the way the law works. Okay, thank you. Uh, any responses to that from the panel? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll take that, that on. Um, I, I think the, uh, you, you, of course, read uh, Congress's findings in the statute. Uh, you, you read the, the, the Declaration of Congress's policy, the, the question is whether you know, Congress can in the, declare that the best interests of children are served by having them placed with certain persons defined by their race. The, there, the Congress has said, also said in the, in the House report that, uh, for, that led to the enactment of ICWA. It said that you know, the goal of ICWA is to ensure that Indian children are placed with the Indian community. And I think Charles said, said in substance as much uh, in his discussion. Well, you know, they, the Supreme Court in a case called Palmore versus Sadati said, you know, if you, where African-American children are involved, you, you could not have, you could not have a, a, a statute that says, or a policy that says, uh, black children should be placed with the black community. That would violate the Constitution's ban on racial discrimination. So it comes back to the same question, really, whether you view uh, 
a classification based on membership in any one of 573 Indian tribes as racial or not? Um, I, other panelists. I, I, the, the problem with the, the so-called presumption is that, in fact, when you look at the cases, what you find is that state courts have said time and time again that what that provision means is that state courts cannot assess and apply the, in, the best interest of this particular child in her, his or her particular circumstances in applying ICWA. And we can say, well, the case after case after case has just wrong, that's an anecdote, that's just wrongly applied equal. Well, how many anecdotes and, and wrongly decided cases does it take before you amend the statute to say, hey, look, courts, that's not what we meant, and that's not what's going on. What's going on is that state courts and, and, and Texas and Nebraska and, and California courts are divided on this issue um, and haven't the state Supreme Court hasn't addressed it but these cases almost uniformly say that courts are not allowed to apply an independent best interest of the child standard in, a, in the particular circumstances of a particular case because Congress has decreed that for these children this is their best interest and it is inconceivable to me to think that the federal Congress has any authority to pass a statute that says any child who falls into this racial category, X is in their best interest, and that's that. Every segregating statute is going to say that. Every statute that classifies people based on their ethnicity, and by the way, if you don't like the ethnicity example, say nationality, because it's the same standard that applies to nationality discrimination as to racial discrimination. So you could say, any Congress said, passes a law that says any child whose great-grandparents came to the United States from Japan shall be treated in the following manner. Congress has no authority to do that. It violates the Constitution in half a dozen different ways. <laughs> Charles. Well, just very quickly, I, th I think what Congress was doing was making factual findings. Congress investigated and, and found that, in fact, it was, generally speaking, harmful to children who had cultural affinities for tribes, who, have been, who had relatives or other associations with tribes to be separated from them and raised separately. And that was, a, again, a factual finding that has to inform the determinations that are made as to the best interest of the child. Uh, in any subsequent custody determination. That's not dictating how the outcome of the determination is going to be made. It's saying that this is a fact, uh, a reality that at, we have determined at, you know, years down the road affect the well-being of Indian children who were separated from their tribal communities and their parents, and that this is something that must be taken into account in the best interest calcula calculus. So I, I think that in much of this debate about you know, racial classification, again, we, we've added back and forth whether or not Wicca is in fact a racial classification. And it's, I think under existing law, it pretty clearly is not. It is a political determination. And once, once you accept that, or once that is definitively determined, then I think all else on this point follows. Just, just add, I agree with that for, with the, for the most part. I agree that a straightforward reading of Wicca, if you just took the statute and read it in your, in your lap, that's the conclusion you'd come to, that Congress had passed this, had, had said, as a factual matter, it's just better for children to be raised in the, following, in the following way. And the problem is that state courts haven't done that. They've interpreted it to say, that's a bar against a court applying its own assessment of a child's individual circumstances and best interest. And it's case after case after case. This is not just some, you know, one random case from 1972. This is case after case after case. And if that is indeed what Congress intends, that the individual circumstances of a child might override that presumption if a, if a judge in his own independent review of those particular circumstances decides to do so, then Congress needs to amend the statute to make that clear because judges just have not gotten that message. Um, 
Yeah, it, it seems to me, leaving aside the race issue and, and the question of whether the federal government has jurisdiction, that Congress is all the time prescribing assumptions, rebuttable assumptions or otherwise, uh, for what might otherwise be multi-factor balancing tests or, or complete judicial discretion. Um, uh, more questions from the audience? Uh, yes, ma'am. I'm Ann Common. I'm a lawyer, former law professor, and birth mother. And I would like to know from both Mr. McGill and Mr. Sandiford, are there narrow amendments you would like to see to ICWA? And if so, what they are. And given the amount of prejudice in some states against Native Americans, I'm thinking about North Dakota, where I spent some time, South Dakota, would this be likely, changing ICWA at all, would this be likely to make child welfare agencies take the kids away from Native Americans more easily? Well, uh, if I were given a blue pencil and were permitted to amend ICWA, I would eliminate the placement preferences of Section 1915 which you know, is applicable to adoptive placements, foster placements, and pre-adoptive placements. The, um, you know, that would leave intact, uh, you know, some things that I might find objectionable, but I think that that is the most objectionable thing uh, that I, I would urge, uh, you know, a Congress that were inclined to revisit ICWA to uh, eliminate. That would leave intact most uh, pertinent to today's discussion. It would leave intact everything relating to the termination of parental rights. All of ICWA's heightened standards for that. It's a it's a it's a very hard question. It's one that I've thought about a lot. Um, I don't know. I think you did. There have to be a, a number of very simple amendments, but it may have to diff be different ones because there's different provisions that are objectionable here. I think if I could only pass one, it would be a I would add a provision that says that the individual uh, circumstances of the individual child and of the individual parents must take precedence. The individual parents thing, by the way, you know, obviously you can't make it that the best interest of the child is the only consideration because it, it, the parents have their constitutional rights, and you, you can't be have a standard that's going to take children away from from parents based on the child's own in considerations as opposed to theirs. So you, you have to balance those interests, and I think the best way to do that would be to say their individual circumstances have to be the overriding consideration. Another, another idea I had was um, to amend a different statute, and that is the, the Federal um, Adoption Act, the, the um, oh, I've forgotten the, term, the name for the nine. Multi-ethnic placement the ethnic, act. Multi-ethnic placement act, yeah, to, uh, to eliminate the exception that exists there. The Multi-Ethnic Placement Act forbids the denying or the delaying of an adoption proceeding on the basis of race, and then it has a little provision that says, except Indian children under ICWA. I would strike that out. Any comments? Yeah, just, uh, just one comment. I, on on you know, Matt's tweak to the statute eliminating the placement provisions, the Supreme Court said in the Holyfield case the placement provision was the most important aspect of ICWA and was fundamental to its operation. So I think striking that would that'd be a very significant change in how ICWA operates and where Indian children end up getting placed. Okay, more questions. Um, gentleman in the blue sh shirt there. 
Thank you. I'm Greg Smith with an Indian law firm here in town. Uh, just one comment and one short question. The, we keep talking about Congress's intent, but Congress didn't act in a vacuum. Tribal governments came in and said, our citizens are being taken out of our communities in a systematic way. And we need the federal government to fulfill its responsibility to us as tribal governments to uh, protect our, our populations. So Congress made findings of fact, but this was at the request of tribal governments who have rights of their own. My question is this, that's for just additional context. My question is this, has any federal Indian law ever been found unconstitutional? Sounds like the questioner knows the answer, but I don't know the answer, so any? Not that I know of. Well, I'm not, I'm not aware of any, um, but I haven't really canvassed the, uh, the, certainly they have not been, there's been no federal Indian law that has been invalidated on the equal protection rationale that I am pressing. Um, so, and I am not a, certainly not aware of any on the anti-commandeering rationale that I'm pressing. I'd be surprised, but not completely flabbergasted if there were not one ever. I think if you go back, back, back to some old federal laws, I, I bet you could find one that might've been invalidated. I, you know, with respect to your comment, if I could just, I, you know, if, if stipulating all of that as, as fact, I think, you know, it, it, there could be a much better discussion about ICWA if, if, if it were stipulated that, you know, that, that was the basis for and maybe even a continuing need for ICWA or a statute like ICWA. But it would, be, it would be a better discussion if there were more acknowledgement that ICWA has, is, is regularly and often and to you know, hor horrifying effect sometimes is applied in situations that bear no resemblance to the one that you described, none whatsoever. I wonder, we are running out of time, but I wonder whether um, uh, the court's uh, decisions, at least limiting the application of things like the Non-Intercourse Act in the case of land claims and Land into Trust uh, Act um, might be, if not an invalidation, then at least some sort of limitation. Can I add uh, one little thing with regard yeah. to, the, to the comment? It is, uh, I began my presentation by saying that the, the fatal flaw in ICWA is that it uh, prioritizes the interests of tribal governments over the interests of their members. And so I think that that statement just reinforces what I said. The, if there is a libertarian approach to child protection, it should be that the, that the interests of the individual child should matter more than the interests of any government, whether it be state, federal, or tribal. And so the fact that tribal governments exercise their authority in ICWA cases, often in ways that harm the best interests of children and Indian parents, comes as no surprise to any libertarian. Okay. Um, it's now time for us to break for lunch. Uh, lunch will be held um, right uh, adjacent in the Policy Center foyer. Uh, walk out and you can't miss it. If you are looking for restrooms, uh, keep walking a little bit, turn right and go down the corridor and you will find those uh, restrooms. Uh, please join me in thanking our panel.